What kind of people do we need to be in order for God to say, yes, I could use her. Yes, I could use him. That's who I'm looking for. And what we've already seen is surprising. Because what we've seen from 2 Corinthians, and you can find it other places in Scripture, is that God actually chooses the broken, the shattered, the weak, as well as giving a limp to the strong so that he can work through them mightily. And then last week from chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, we saw how our suffering and serving actually work together. Actually work together. Our adversity and our suffering and this sense of continually dying in this world is actually working for us an eternal weight of glory as well as working in us so that the life of Jesus can shine through us more brightly. In other words, it's in our suffering and dying that the life of Jesus begins to show and shine more brightly, being used by God more greatly in weakness and suffering and adversity. But now here's what I want to do today. Before we end the series, I want to answer one more question that I think it's important that we answer related to our suffering and serving. You've got to answer this question, and the Scripture does on a regular basis, answers this question, because God knows what we're made of and how we struggle. What's going to keep you? What's going to keep me from giving up? And just throwing in the towel on serving, because listen, this suffering and serving, it's not easy, is it? Suffering. And serving and serving and suffering and suffering and serving. What's going to keep you from losing heart and just saying, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. God can find somebody else to work through. It's not going to be me. Do you know there are Christians, maybe some of them sitting right here. There are Christians who have moved to that position. Done. They used to serve God. They used to have a kingdom mindset. They used to. And for many different reasons, it's like, we're done. God can work through somebody else. What's going to keep that from happening to you? What's going to keep that from happening to me? Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to dig into chapter 5 where I think you're going to see what it takes to keep on serving and suffering to the glory of God. What it takes to keep on and not quit and not lose heart, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's going on around you or in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's stand together. Fort Thomas and Florence, let's stand as I read the entire chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house this tent is destroyed we have a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked for we who are in this tent groan 
being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by, say it, faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf, that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge this. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them. And rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us The ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, what a fantastic chapter. And so what can we learn right here in chapter 5? What can we learn right here that can keep you from losing heart and just throwing in the towel altogether on suffering and serving God? What can we learn? Well, I want to show you four things in this chapter 
Four things that I think you've got to remember. You have to keep remembering these four things in the midst of all your suffering and serving if you want to do it for a lifetime. Here's why I think you've got to get a hold of what Paul is talking to us about in chapter 5. Because to the degree, these two things are connected. To the degree that you continue to remember everything I'm going to show you in this chapter is the degree to which you will be able to persevere in your suffering and serving, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's happening around you, regardless of what's happening in you. It's not circumstances that cause Christians to quit. You see Christians in harder places, in harder circumstances, still joyfully serving the Lord, and others that think they've had the worst thing ever happen, but it's not done. Why? I want to show you from chapter 5. Here's the first thing you've got to remember. Number one, remember that you're not home yet. I know that's a theme that I thump a lot, but I try to thump what the Bible thumps a lot. And the Bible regularly hits on this because God knows us. He created us. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He knows us better than anyone. He knows how easily we forget this. Everything in our world, folks, is like one giant magnet that just sucks you down to right here, right now. Most of all the music, unless you listen to some good worship Christian music, the music pulls you down to here. Advertisement says right here, right now. Your own flesh says right here, right now. Everybody around you says right here, right now. Everything in our world is pulling us down to right here, right now. And so God knows that we forget. You're not home yet. Look at it in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What is going on here in verse 1? What is Paul doing in verse 1? You know what? Paul is doing one of my favorite things in verse 1. Ripping on tent camping. That's what Paul is doing. Yeah. So I'm following a great man of God every time I do this. Paul's doing it. We don't have time to go there now, but make a note. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 15. Peter rips on tent camping. Okay, so Paul, Peter, Brad. It's biblical. Paul is ripping on tent camping and basically saying, your body right now. This world right now is a tent. What does that signify? Temporary. What does that signify? Inconvenient. What does that signify? Primitive, difficult, hard, unpleasant. Please, those of you that like it, just step aside for a moment. Everyone else is getting it. Right? Tent versus Building, being prepared by God, eternal in the heavens. There's your home. There's your eternal body. There's where it's so good. Not here, not now. He's comparing this life and your earthly body to a tent. And he's saying this now is like tent camping. And this is as good as it gets. But for every believer, we have the hope of a new body. And a new heaven and a new earth and the presence of the Lord. 
in the future coming. See, here's what happens. If you forget that you're not home yet, some really bad things kick into your life. There are implications and consequences of of losing sight. I'm not home yet. This is tent camping. I'm not home yet. This is tent camping. If you lose sight of that, it changes your expectations right here. Your expectations become higher than they should. Let me tell you three things. I want to point out three things from the text that you'll start doing if you lose sight of and forget this is tent camping. Something better is coming. Number one, you'll, you'll start trying to make camping last forever. If you think this is it. You'll just try to make this last forever and you'll try to make this as good. I mean, you see those people in the campground, right? They've lost sight of it. It's camping. doesn't matter if you've got the fifth wheel that steps up into a bedroom. It's camping. You've got a better stove than everybody else. It's camping. You've got tiki torches. It's camping. You can try to make it better. If you lose sight, you'll try to make camping last forever. Your body and your life right now should always remind you that you're not home yet. Something better is coming. Something better is coming. But see, if you're not reading your Bible and you're not staying filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll start trying to make this as good as it can get and make it last forever. What else happens to you? When you remember and keep in mind that this is just tent camping right now, number two, you'll keep groaning for something better. You'll keep groaning for something better. Look at verses two to four. For in this we groan. What? In this present body and in this present world system, in this tent camping life, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, say it, what do we do? Groan, groan. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, I want to make an important distinction. That word groan, some of you may have jumped and treated it and assume it's a synonym for complain. Complain, murmur, groan. No. That word groan in the Greek is the word stenazo. And it referred to an inward unexpressed sorrow that was almost inarticulate. An inward, unexpressed... In other words, it's a word that is trying to capture something that you just don't have words for, but it's real. It's there. And I hope there's enough believers here that love Jesus Christ and read their Bibles enough and have an awareness of what's coming that you know what Paul's talking about. You have it to some degree. Not every day, every moment like you wish, but you know what he's talking about. I do. It's an, it's an inward, inarticulate sorrow over this present condition, my own as well as the world and others, and a longing for something better. What is coming? What is coming? What is coming? New body, new earth, new building. 
as well as when you know him, you're like, I want to see him glorified. I want to see him revealed in his fullness. I'm tired of seeing him dissed and marginalized. You love him like I love my wife. And I want Vicky to be seen for who she truly is. I want you to think she's as wonderful as I am. When you love Jesus, you long for that day. Right now, we're caught in a tent camping world. And there ought to be a measure of sorrow and groaning for something better, 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 better. Now get this. I'm going to say something that might surprise some of you. You actually serve God better and longer when you groan. Track with me. You can serve God better and longer and persevere when you groan for what is coming next. Because then you get excited about getting in on and being a part of what God is doing to bring about his kingdom. And to see the new heaven and earth arrive and to see our Lord return. And you know what he's about right now that he says... It's not his will that any should perish, but all should come to the saving knowledge. He delays his return. We're left in tent camping so that others may come to know him. And God's heart is a heart of mercy. And you say, I want to get in on that. How can I be used by God for what matters most? When you keep groaning and longing for something better, you're much more likely to get excited about getting in on what God is doing now. When you stop groaning and you start settling in to this world and trying to make tent camping last forever, here's what happens. You stop groaning and you start complaining. There's a difference. Complaining is what we do out loud with lots of words. Very articulate. Complaining is what we do out loud with lots of words. This stenazo groaning is inward, internal, and inarticulate. In some places, it was actually translated as the word sigh. There's just, there's just no words. Just, there's an ache, there's a sorrow, there's a longing. But when you lose that, and you think this is it, you will start complaining because this isn't as good as you think it ought to be. This should be better. Why is this happening? Why is this like this? You go from groaning to complaining. And oh my goodness, that is such a poor testimony. That, that doesn't point anyone to Jesus Christ. That's what the world does constantly. And when believers jump over there and start the same thing with a Christian fish on their bumper, it's a horrible contradiction. But we got too many Christians trying to make tent camping last forever. And so they're complaining just like everybody else. Some of you need, listen to me, you don't need to sign up to serve anywhere yet. You need to start groaning. You need to start groaning. Ask God to give you that groan, give you that ache, give you that internal sorrow that is not related to, oh, my life is so bad, I don't have everything I should want. It's a groaning and a sorrow and an ache for his glory and his kingdom and his promises and the fulfillment of all that's coming and his son. And see if you don't find yourself responding to opportunities to serve. What you have lacked is not an awareness that there's ways to serve. It's a groaning 
that gets you excited to be a part of what God's doing. Stop complaining and start groaning. It's the same thing that we saw in Romans chapter 8. Here's a great reason to go to Romans again. Go there. Romans 8. It's the same thing we saw in Romans chapter 8. The exact same concept is in Romans chapter 8. Turn in your Bibles there and look at it beginning in verse 18. Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, tent camping time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He's doing the same thing in his letter to the Christians in Rome that he was doing in his second letter to the Christians in Corinth. This is what he does on a regular basis. you got to know what's coming next and God's promises and God's kingdom to keep the right priority and evaluation on. So what do I do with this? How do I evaluate this? Oh, when Christians have little or no awareness of eternity, they've got nothing to compare to and they complain. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Skip to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, ah, here's our word. What's it do? What's the whole creation do? groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we, Christians, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You see how this is working? When you groan, it enables you to persevere and you can keep going longer than the Christian who is trying to make tent camping last forever. All they can do is complain like everybody else. You can groan and serve and suffer And groan and serve and suffer. Because I want you to notice, look at verse 26. You don't groan alone. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with what? Groanings which cannot be uttered. As you get more familiar with and intimate with the Holy Spirit who lives within you, and I think you should as a believer, this year we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit that I hope will help you. The Holy Spirit, yes, is a comfort, but the Holy Spirit will help you to continue to groan in the most biblical way that will keep you serving and persevering in the midst of adversity and suffering. And notice in Romans 8 there, this This is a threefold cord that helps you persevere. Groaning, biblical groaning, never travels alone. She always has two other companions. Did you see them in these verses in Romans 8? Hoping, waiting, groaning. Hoping, waiting, groaning. And biblical wait is not like, ah, let's wait. We have no idea what's going on. This is so stupid. I'm wasting my... No, biblical word wait means 
leaning over with a posture of expectation, knowing that God is sovereign. He's up to something. I have his promises, but I'm not going to run ahead of him. Waiting on the Lord and hoping. And, and again, biblical hope is not, well, I hope so. You think the Bengals will do better yet next year? I hope so. It's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of future blessing based on the character and promises of God. Hoping. Because we know God's word. Waiting. Because we know there's a special blessing. The Bible tells you over and over, it's good to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. He'll strengthen you. He'll empower you. Wait on the Lord. Waiting, hoping, groaning is what will help you to persevere. But if you lose sight of eternity and you start trying to make tent camping last forever, all you'll do is complain. And so go back to 2 Corinthians 5 and you'll see, just like in Romans 8, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us with this. That's what you see in verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing. What thing? Eternity. Something better. What's he done even now in this tent camping world? You do not camp alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. It's the word pledge or deposit or down payment or guarantee. You know something more is coming, but it's not all happened yet. Here's a deposit. Here's a pledge. Here's a guarantee. He's given us not only his promises in in his word, but the Holy Spirit within us that gives us an awareness even now of what more is to come to enjoy Jesus face to face. But even now I have the spirit of the living Christ, resurrected Jesus Christ, his spirit living in me as a guarantee that this is real. This is real. This is real. More is coming. And when you have this Holy Spirit, I want you to notice, he doesn't just give you comfort. He gives you courage and confidence. Look at verse 6 and verse 8. Paul uses the word confidence, and some of your translations chose to translate it courage, which is great. Confidence or courage in verse 6. Confidence or courage in verse 7. And you got the Holy Spirit in verse 5 as a guarantee helping you on that. But I want you to notice something. Between this confidence in 6 and confidence in 8, we are living right now in a verse 7 world. Look at verse 7. What's it say? For we walk by what? Faith. Not by, say it, sight. See, trying to make tent camping last forever is when you're just looking at the circumstances right here and determining how good God is, how faithful God is. And this is just not all I'd hoped. He's a, we walk by faith. Not by, you got to keep your eyes set on outside this world more. more. Now, if we walk by faith and not by sight, how do you feed your faith? What increases your faith that enables you more and more to walk by faith instead of sight? Anybody know what Romans 10, 17 says? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to read God's word to know what the promises are and to even know there is an eternity. But you've got to keep reading God's word because it's God's word that feeds your faith that enables you to walk by faith instead of sight. 
And then the Holy Spirit is your guarantee who groans in you and through you to keep you from shifting to complaining. We walk by faith, not by sight. Oh, you got to remember that you're not home yet. You're not home yet. So keep groaning for something better. But let me show you a, a second thing Paul says. You got to remember this. You got to keep this in mind. You got to remember. Number two, remember that what you do in this life right now has eternal consequences in the next. What you do and what I do in this life right now. So yeah, it's a tent camping life, but don't act like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. Oh, yes, it does. What you do in this life now has eternal consequences in the next. That's what he's talking about in verses 9 to 11. Look at verses 9 to 11 again in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What, did Paul, what does Paul say in verse 9 should be the aim or the goal for every Christian right now in this tent camping life? Please God. How am I going to know what pleases God? I got to be reading his word. I got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be at close range with other believers helping hold on to me and point out blind spots I'm not seeing at close range. Please God. And what is it that Paul says should be our motivation Towards pleasing God. It's in verse 10 and 11. Future rewards and fear of the Lord. Not so much for you as a believer, right? Verse 11 is talking about knowing the terror of the Lord. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is loving. And right now Jesus calls to everyone to come. But those who die without Christ, having rejected the gospel and his free offer, will experience the terror of the Lord. Therefore, we persuade men, whether they mock us or not. We give away our lives, whether they respond or not. Verse 11 is on behalf of those that don't know him. We think, oh, that is, that is also who our God is. Oh, yes, he's a God of love. And yes, he sings over me now. I'm an object of his mercy, but it's only because I've trusted Christ. There are those who have not. I persuade. And verse 10, get this. I think, I think some of you do not understand what, what verse 10 is talking about. So let me, let me give you a, a nudge in the right direction. Verse 10 is not a reference to the great white throne judgment at the end where God will separate the sheep from the goats and decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 is a judgment of believers. An accountability of believers for rewards based on how you lived in this life. Did you know that? So many believers say, oh, there'll be no judgment for us. There, there is no wrath. There is no judgment. Yes, on that. But to say, I didn't matter what you do now. We're just all going to heaven. News alert. Some of you are going to be in a hut. I know you'll be glad to be there. But it's not even so much mansion versus hut. Listen to me. 
when you groan and you love Jesus, every reward that we'll get is, is so that I'll have that to throw at his feet. I don't want to be empty handed. I want to have lived my life for what matters most. That verse is not talking about a judgment to determine whether you did enough to be saved. You can't. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone plus. But that verse, it has nothing to do with your salvation and everything to do with how you lived after he saved you. Yes, it matters. I want to live for what matters most. I want to get in on what God is doing. Motivated by future Reward. And that's why, as your pastor and friend, along with the Apostle Paul, I so often beg you to live with an eternal perspective. To live with an eternal perspective. To keep the bigger picture. To be reading God's word enough to to think outside of this tent camping world. And to know what matters most. Say, Brad, how do you do that? I don't do it perfectly, but let me tell you how I've been able to do it to any degree and not stop doing it. I read my Bible. How much of it? How often? Every year. All of it. This will give you a different perspective on what matters most. Read my Bible. All of it. Including the book of Revelation. And I don't go there to try to figure out the dates and the monsters and the wars and who's the Antichrist and is it Hillary. I don't try to do any of that. I think that is so fruitless with the book of Revelation. And so many Christians miss the point. Christians were suffering and were about to suffer more. And he gave us an apocalyptic future vision of recognizing God is sovereign over all the nations. And Jesus will be glorified. And his death was not wasted. And there'll be people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And there's amazing worship scenes there that motivate you to live differently now. Don't hear me saying I give little or no thought to some of the other particulars. I I keep trying to learn more about that. But don't miss the main thing. Revelation. Let me put it to you this way. Revelation. Every year, and we hit it in December as I read through the Bible in a year. It is one of the most clarifying and terrifying books you could read. It just breaks my heart all over again. For the people... That I love that don't know the Lord. And for friends that I have that don't. This is real you guys. There is an eternity. There is a God of wrath. There is a heaven. There is a hell. It's so clarifying. And terrifying. And helpful. All of God's word is is clarifying. But oh, I think the book of Revelation in a special way. Paul Tripp says this. I love it. He says this about the book of Revelation. Revelation is in the Bible so that you can eavesdrop on eternity and clarify this present moment. Classic Paul Tripp. We got the Apostle Paul. We got Paul Tripp coming at you today. So good. So that we can eavesdrop on eternity. And clarify. Wouldn't it be awful if we just lived every day thinking, I don't know what's coming. I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know how it turns out. 
We don't live that way. Well, some of you do. You don't have to live that way. What a blessing that he gave us revelation. Clarifying, eavesdropping on eternity. See, getting a preview of eternity, folks, should not just entertain you and amuse you and say, oh, that's really interesting. Now I know that and other people don't. It should change how you live now. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to Revelation 19. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning of verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6. Oh, there's some great, great passages in Revelation that are not confusing. So many Christians get all wound up about what they don't understand. You ought to spend more time saying, oh my goodness, that is clear. How should I live in light of that? Here's some of it. Revelation 19, 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude of the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself. He's talking about us. Right now we got an engagement ring, the Holy Spirit. But our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is preparing a wedding feast. And there it is. It's going to happen. It's come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Jump to chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice. Here's the other thing. If you're not comfortable with loud, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Lots of loud, loud. I know it's great to worship quietly sometimes and we get pushed back sometimes whenever it gets loud. I'm getting you ready for heaven. Loud, loud. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. We've had this groaning. We've got the deposit of the Holy Spirit. We've had this groaning to be with God in his very presence in the new heaven, new earth. And he himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I Make all things, say it, new. That's what we're longing for. Don't try to make this tent camping life wonderful. Right there is what you're groaning for. There is what we're longing for. Right there is what he's promised us. Commenting on this passage, Paul Tripp goes on to say this. The book of Revelation opens the doors of eternity and invites us to stop, look, and listen while allowing you to sit in the corner of glory. It's almost like there's a sign on the door to eternity that says, do you want to know what's really important? Eavesdrop on eternity. Do you want to to evaluate the life investments that you've made? Eavesdrop on eternity. Do you want to construct a life that really fits with what God is doing? Eavesdrop on eternity. Eternity is is the compass that orients every aspect of a Christian's life. 
And I love that quote, but I want to take issue with him on the last sentence. Eternity should be the compass that orients every aspect, my relationships, my money, my time, my gifts, of a Christian's life. Sadly, it's not in many cases. Let me ask you, is eternity the compass that orients every aspect of your Christian life? Or is it something else that is true north for you that helps you decide what really matters most? And if it's something else, a relationship, money, the good life, stuff, image, career, I don't know. Let me ask you this about that something else then. Does that compass that you're using Does it lead you to live in such a way that your eternal rewards are increasing? Or does it lead you to live in such a way that on that verse 10 day of accountability and reckoning before your God, you're going to be ashamed and heart sick of what you lived for because you will watch it all burn up. Don't hear me saying you will burn up. But the Bible teaches you'll watch what you lived for and made so much of and poured all your money into and time and gifts burn up because it was all temporary and you had made no investments in eternity. If if you think I'm crazy sometimes when I talk the way I do about making choices in life and our money, I'm not crazy I'm wanting to get in on what God is doing. Every dollar I give away and help someone with a house payment or a medical bill, every dollar I give this church, every dollar I give New Hope, every dollar I push outside of me will be there when I get there. It's all an eternal investment. It's like I make decisions. I do have retirement investments. Don't worry about us. You think I'm worried about Vicky sometimes the way he talks. We're all right. Don't hear me saying it's wrong to have insurance or invest. I do. But I'm not going to push all my dollars towards right here, right now. No way. Because I have a compass of eternity that tells me, oh, what a fool I would be to do that. And I want to get in on what God is doing. Let me say this to you. It's never too late to put down the compass you have and pick up this one. Don't sit there and say, oh, I've done it wrong. Oh, well, no, you're here today. God has you here today. I would say it to you this way. If what you always thought, if what you always thought was true turned out not to be true, when would you want to know it? How about today? If you've been living just like the world, it's the bigger house, it's the bigger car, it's more travel, it's more amenities, it's more of the good life. God's word is saying today, don't do that. If what you always thought was true turned out not to be true and God's word is telling you it's not true, when would you want to know it? Today make changes. If you're up to your eyeballs in debt, today make changes. Change the way you're living. And not just money, with your time, with your calendar, with your schedule, with your gifts, with your compassion. 
See, what Paul is doing in chapter 5 is really just an expansion of what he left us with at the end of 4, right? This, this eternity compass. Look at the end of chapter 4 again, verse 18. This is where he left us, this same kind of thinking. While we do not look, 2 Corinthians 4, 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are, say it, temporary. The things which are not seen are, say it, eternal. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I want you to imagine that this rope just goes on forever. And ever, and ever, and ever. It doesn't. I don't want you to imagine that. There's no end to this. And that this rope is a timeline. It represents a timeline of your existence, your life. Which, by the way, is eternal. Because you are created in the image of God. Unlike the plant and animal kingdom, you are created in the image of God and you're going to live forever. That means that when you die physically, that's not the end of your life, my friend. When they lower that casket into the ground and throw those shovels full of dirt on top of it, that is not the end. That is the beginning of your eternity somewhere that was shaped and determined by the choices you are making now. All this rope piled up in front of me and trailing off behind me is your life. But here's what I want you to to make a note of. You see this little red chunk here? This is your life here on this earth. From your first breath, screaming breath as a baby in a hospital, to your last dying gasp. That's it. All of it. This takes it all in. From birth to preschool to peewee football to middle school to high school, maybe college, on into a career, maybe marriage, maybe kids, maybe grandkids, assisted living, and back into another hospital for your last breath. That is it. And so here's what just blows my mind. It's the way people talk about this little red chunk. Including Christians. I understand that non-Christians, this is all they got. Atheists, this is all they got. Grab all the gusto you can. Get, get all the red chunk you can. But when I watch Christians live like functional atheists with their money and their time, it's all about this red chunk. Oh, here's what kills me. Sure, the world thinks this way, but I hear Christians talk this way. Oh, my, here's birth. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait till right there. Right before the end. Maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years before the end. I'm going to save and save and save and save and invest so that we can just have the good life. Go crazy. We're going to go everywhere we want to go. Eat everything we want to eat. Buy everything we wanted to buy. Or, oh, if we could back it up. Did you see that move? Ten years and retire early. At 50 or 55, start eating all we want. Go all we want to go. Have all the stuff we want to have. 
What about eternity? Why would you spend all your money and your energy and your thoughts being consumed with what is so short and what is going to dictate and determine and shape what is unending? Christians? I know, I know some of you, I haven't gotten an email, but I know some of you, you probably think when I talk the way I do about choices Vicky and I have made about the house we live in that some of you would never have lived in. No walking closets, no sunken tums, no, no glorious kitchen. I gotta live in that. The cars we drive on purpose, we could have nicer cars. I could get a Land Rover. But we don't. The amount of money we give away. And you think sometimes, that is so stupid, sweaty man. It's cutting into how you can live right here. That is cutting into your life right here. That is cutting into some of the good life right here. The stuff you could do, the things you could pile up, the places you could go. But when I read my Bible in places like 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and Revelation, I say, no, 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 no. You're a fool. If you stay consumed with this little red chunk with your money and your time and your thoughts and your perspective and you make no preparations for or investments into your eternity. Therefore, we do not look at the things which are seen, the things which are unseen. Quickly, let me give you two more things that Paul says you need to remember. I'll have to let you... Chew on it some yourself. Number three, remember that living for your Savior looks like insanity to the rest of the world. Yes, if you do this right and you're groaning and you've got an eternal perspective and the compass of eternity is your compass, you will look crazy to the world. Right there in verse 15, when he says, if we are beside ourselves. Do you know what the Greek word is? It's a word that meant mentally deranged and living irresponsibly in their behavior. How about that? If you start giving away your life and your money and your gifts and your time and your stuff because you're groaning and you see eternity and you got a different compass, they'll say you're crazy, you're mad, you're insane, and you'll be in really good company. Jesus was accused of the same and so was the Apostle Paul. We ought to wonder why more of us are not accused of being deranged. So many Christians live so much just like the rest of the world. Nobody thinks you're crazy. They just think, oh, they chose to add Sunday services and a little bit of Christian stuff to their life. They ought to think we're crazy. As you carve out time sacrificially to meet with a coworker, as you lead a small group, as you teach a children's class, as you come early and stand in the cold parking lot and help direct, whatever it is you're doing inside or outside of our church, it ought to be enough that people say, that's crazy. Why aren't you taking care of you? Because in that same chunk of verses where he says, if we're beside ourselves, he goes on to say, it's the love of Christ that compels us. When you know Christ's love for you, you want to live for him. He solved my biggest problem. He died and rose again. I don't need to hang on to all this stuff. I'm not going to live for this little red chunk. I've got an eternity coming. I've got Maui. I've got a mountain home. I've got it all. It's coming. I don't have to try to get it all. I don't have to make tent camping so wonderful. It's tent camping. 
And I look forward to the thing collapsing and we'll drag the whole stinking thing and it's pulls to a dumpster dumpster. And God's gonna do a new heaven and a new earth. I'm gonna have a new body. Last thing you gotta remember. If you do this right, you ought to look crazy. And lastly, number four, remember what God's done for you without ignoring what he has sovereignly determined to do through you. Here's another mistake Christians make. Like there's gonna be no judgment and no accountability on how we live. The other mistake is, oh, God save us by his grace and, and through faith and in Christ. Nothing we got to do. And then they, and there's nothing I do now. Big mistake. Verse 21 shows us what God has done. See it? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That, there's nothing you did. He did it. Verses 18 to 20 shows you how God has determined to use us. To bring others to the good news of verse 21. Four times in verses 18 to 20. He uses the word us. 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 And then he uses the phrase ambassadors for Christ. And I love this. As though God were pleading through. Who? God intends to use us. To share this good message. To do a sacrificial deed. To lay down our lives for somebody else. To point them to verse 21. That there's nothing we can do. But but, but God's called us to be the carriers of this good news. To be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. What compass do you have in your hand? And do you live with an awareness of. No matter how scared you are. Weak you are. Broken you are. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Oh I work at, at Ackerman but I'm an ambassador for Jesus. Oh, I work at Great American, but I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Do you have the right compass? Do you have the right title to live for what matters most? Oh God, reorient us. As we head into a new year, reorient us. Make eternity the compass that shapes and determines every aspect of our lives so that we could get in on what you're doing. And for those that have been eaten up with complaining and can't remember the last time they groaned in a Holy Spirit sigh kind of way for your glory, bring back the groaning, oh God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.